so there's some people just joining us this week, so let me kind of catch you up just a little bit to let you know how we do things. We preach through books of the Bible, so obviously we're trekking through the book of John right now. Uh, we believe that John's gospel is an apologetic uh, or a defense for the deity of Christ. Four Gospels, the first three called the Synoptic Gospels because they're very similar to one another. Uh, but the fourth Gospel, John's Gospel, turns a corner uh, substantially in that it captures, or it, I guess it zeroes in on the deity of Christ. So when you read John's Gospel and you compare it to the other Gospels, it's still Gospel, everything's true, right? But there's a stronger focus on the deity of Christ. That's why we would call John's gospel an apologetic for the deity of Christ. And John writes, he says, I've written these things so that you might believe. So everything that we walk through, all the healings, all the discussions, all those who are pointing to Christ, all those who are arguing for his deity, all the things that transpire are all there so that we might believe. And others have believed throughout the ages because of these things that have been written. So Austin has set up the scene for us, in case you didn't trek with him well, in a 10-second nutshell. Sick man at the Pool of Bethesda, lots of people there, lots of several pools there. He's an invalid for 38 years. He can't get to the pool to find healing. Jesus enters the scene. Jesus knows his scenario. Jesus knows his issue. And Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Of course, the man wants to be healed. Jesus heals the man. The man goes, doesn't even know who Jesus is, even after the healing. He goes, the Jews ask him, who is this man that healed you? I don't know. Then Jesus finds him and says, I'm Jesus. He says, sin no more. Be well, sin no more so that nothing else will happen to you. So there's the scene. Pretty easy scene to follow, pretty easy scene to understand. But there's a whole lot of issues that surface in the text. So let me share with you my objective today. So the objective is to identify and understand key issues that highlight God's grace, that highlight man's inability, man's depravity. All right, so you're going to go away feeling really encouraged, and Christian conduct. Right, and I see these things in the text, and I give you this objective so that you're in the lane with me so that when I try to bring these things from the text, you can see them for yourself uh, rather than just taking my word for it. Because that's my job is to bring these things that I'm arguing for out of the text so that you can deal with it and so that you can see it. Let me give you some opening notes. Because if you're looking in your Bible, if you're carrying a New American Standard, if you're carrying a New uh, International Version, if you're carrying an English Standard Version or whatever, you might notice that there's not a verse 4 in your Bible. And that may bother some of you. And this happens from time to time. The entire, well, the, the, the entire book of, uh, the entire chapter of John 8 is, is added to later manuscripts. The same kind of situation is going on here. And we can have a discussion about textual criticism and all that fun stuff later. By the way, these questions have been answered. People aren't really bothered by this. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, create, it doesn't, the Bible doesn't suffer that kind of scrutiny to the extent that you don't, that you don't believe it anymore, that you don't walk away, you're not going to walk away from the faith because, oh my goodness, there's 5,000-something New Testament manuscripts, and this, verse 4, didn't surface until way later into those manuscripts. You know, it wasn't in the early manuscripts, verse 4, right? And uh, so, by way of introduction, so that we keep the main thing the main thing, in the King James Version, it speaks of an angel who comes and an angel stirs the waters at Bethesda. Now, it's oral tradition that that actually happened. Now, commentators are divided on this. 
we don't really know for sure. I'm not, we as in, I'm not a commentator, but looking at that and the who's who of the scholars, they don't really know if this is just oral tradition, you know, or, or what's what. So to be cautious and to handle the Bible with great concern, we're not going to say, thus says the Lord. Oh, this is what it's supposed to be, because it wasn't in the earlier manuscripts. But for some reason along the way, some scribes, somebody said, you know what, I'm going to put it in there, because they felt that it helped make more sense of the reading. Okay? That's the same way with English. They, the words are, inside, are inserted to help the English reading make more sense when it comes from Greek to the English. Okay, so for example, the Bible has... A 90 is somewhere in 96 to 98 percent accuracy rate. Your English translation with the original manuscripts, all of them. You know, there's 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 tens and tens of thousands of manuscripts. There's like 30, 20, high 20 something thousand manuscripts total, and it has a 98 percent accuracy rate. So this is a big deal. This is a big deal. So, but what they do sometimes is they they insert a word, they change a word in the English just to help the reading, so that you can understand better what's going on. One of these issues has come up where the English Standard Version and other versions approach this text and say, you know what, we're not going to add it in there. It might help the reading, but it wasn't in the original manuscripts, so we're just not going to put it in there. But here's the issue. It doesn't matter whether or not an angel came and stirred the waters because this man didn't find healing by the waters of Bethesda. Jesus is the one who brought healing, so Jesus is the focus of the story, not some mysterious angel that descended and stirred the waters so that someone could jump in, right? So we can agree on that so that nobody gets hung up on the lack of verse Four. Are we good with that? All right, so we'll carry on. Don't lose the deepest meaning of the text because you cannot pull yourself away from tertiary mysteries. That happens a lot to people. Like, I can't figure this out, so it stunts their growth. Like, I can't move past that. Don't let tertiary stuff keep you from the main thing. What matters is that Jesus performs the miracles. That is clear in this text. So several issues come from the text. We're going to walk through this together, and you can follow me. The first issue is this. The first issue is man's inability, and I think that's clear. The text opens up. Jesus is here. There's this man who is at the pool, this man that is an invalid for 38 years, basically meaning that he suffered an illness or an injury to such a degree that it basically immobilized him. This man was stuck here. The waters were stirred or something happens, whether an angel actually stirred the waters or whether it was a spring that came up from behind, which some scholars think, whether it was superstition, who knows? No matter what the case may be, these people believed with all of their heart that if they got in this water, they might be healed. And it very well could have happened. I don't have an issue with an angel that comes down and stirs the water. If I don't have an issue with God speaking things into existence, ex nihilo, if I don't have a problem with that, If I don't have a problem with a universal flood, if I don't have a problem with all these miracles, why would I start to have a problem with the potential that an angel came and stirred the waters? It's not a hang-up. I don't have an issue. Either way, this man couldn't get to the pool because of his own inability. He couldn't do it. So I'm reading the text, and I'm thinking, what is... What do I preach? How do I preach this? Because we, we just came off of a healing, and as we go through the Gospel of John, we're just going to have healing after healing after healing, and God just, or Jesus, expressing his deity, expressing his godhood over and over again. So what am I to do? Am I to come here and say, well, again today, we're saying Jesus is God. You may go home, amen, peace out, kind of thing. So I'm not going to do that, right, because there's so much more to this text than just saying, well, here's another miracle, you know, <laughs> you know same, same song, different verse. But that's not the case. It's interesting how Jesus interacts with this man. He approaches the man, and he asks this question, which would seem highly rhetorical. Do you want to be healed? He's at the pool. 
he's at the place where people believe they could find healing and most likely saw people find healing. So he's there. Jesus knows this man wants to be healed. He's there for that purpose. But there's a specific reason that he asks this man this question. I believe he most likely asked this question so that the man might come face to face with his own inability, with the reality of his situation, that he might acknowledge that he is utterly incapable of self-deliverance. So what's happening is John is showing us the deity of Christ, but he's pulling back the curtain for you and me so that he can hold up the Bible as a mirror and it shows us who we are apart from Christ and it shows us that we are incapable of self-deliverance. This is exactly what I believe is happening here in this text. This man didn't have the strength to get himself into the pool. He may have had friends around, he may have had family around, but at that moment they were not there. For whatever reason, there was no one there to pick him up and put him in the pool because he needed someone. He needed an active agent in his life to do the work for him because he's the passive agent in the story. He can't heal himself. He can't deliver himself. So God's word then becomes a mirror for us, and it shows us, just like this 30-year invalid, albeit that is true of the story, it's representative of our pre-grace conversion condition. This is how I want you to see it. Here's the lenses that you need to have on right now is, okay, I see that this man is an invalid for 38 years, but what does this man represent? Because there's all kinds of things happening in the text. Yes, Jesus is going to perform a miracle, and it's going to point to his deity. But there's layers to this, and he's showing us, this is you. This is you. And you're suffering something, or you suffered something much worse than a 38-year-old bout with injury and illness. You have much bigger problems that you're having to contend with or that you had to contend with when you were estranged from God, when you were separate from Christ, as in you did not identify with him because you did not receive or have his gospel. We were all the spiritual invalids in desperate need for Christ to do for us what we could not do for ourselves because man has a severe inability for self-deliverance. We don't think that way all the time. Functionally, we think we pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. We think, I want to be a self-made man. We have a self-made man mentality. But the Bible says, look, here's the mirror, and what the mirror shows you is there's no such thing as a self-made man. There is a grace-made man. And that's part of the focus of the story is that Jesus is saying, you know, everybody's separated and everybody needs a grace made mentality as opposed to a self-made mentality because there are no self-made men and this is represented in the story with the 38 year invalid our spiritual condition was much worse than that ephesians says we were dead in our trespasses you know and i don't really have to elaborate on that because does it get worse than that you were dead i mean there's an invalid for 38 years that's bad that's horrible but death is, death, Paul says, is the final enemy, the last enemy. The Bible places a magnifying glass on death and says this is the worst. This is it for, for those who are outside of Christ especially. Death is the curse. I mean, you think about it. God is infinitely hating towards sin. Man transgressed. Man broke God's law. And God responds by placing a curse on people. I mean, God could have said, you know what? There's, there's, there's going to be a curse, and it's not going to be death later physically. It's going to be, I'm going to wipe you out now, and I'll put you in hell now. I'm a, I guess that would have been worse. But this is what God came up with. So 
And it's a product of his justice. It's a product of his eternal hatred for sin because sin works contrary to who God is in his being. So by nature, he has to deal with it. He has to hate it. So he pronounces death. So death physically is what we face, all of us. Death spiritually is what we arrive here with. Separation from God from the get-go. And that's because of Adam and his sin that we, and his sin nature that we've all inherited. And that's just what the scripture teaches So one of the major indications of being born again is when we move away from self-made mentality and into grace-made mentality. And it's easy to spot. I don't know if you've ever talked to someone about their faith. I know it's not always easy to do that, but you talk to someone about their faith. And you want to explain to them the gospel, explain to them the grace, of, the grace of God in sending Jesus. And Austin quoted it earlier, that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might in him we might become the righteousness of God. We quote these things, we hear these things, and we're just, in our minds, and maybe even in reality, waxing eloquent on the gospel, and we're just giving it to people, and they respond with, oh, I just need to fix myself up a little bit. So you're pouring out this grace-made mentality, this grace-made situation, and they're responding with a man-made. They're saying, I just need to fix things up. They want to make themselves acceptable to God. And the problem is it removes Jesus from the equation because Jesus and his work alone makes us acceptable to God. But it removes that. That's what the self-made mentality does. And it's a tragedy because it completely misses grace. Completely. It completely misses grace. Grace says... Here you go, I've done the work for you. Just receive. And work says, no, 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 I've got to earn this. I've got to get there. I've got to be something. I've got to make something of myself so that I can become worthy of his acceptance. This is grace, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's grace. Nothing in here about what man has done to achieve a certain status. This is, well, other than sin and achieve a separation status. This is about what God has done to bring you into a complete status. It says, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, a place you and I did not deserve, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Romans 5 and 6 says, for while we were still helpless... While we were still invalids, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's grace. So when Jesus arrives on the scene and there's this invalid representative of every single one of us and every single person that's unbelieving in the world today, Jesus is saying, look, you need someone to put you into the healing waters. And more directly, Jesus is saying, I am that living water. I am that person. I mean, it should come as no surprise that Jesus just tells this Samaritan woman at the well, I am living water. And this guy's looking for waters to bring him life, to waters to bring him healing. And he says again, I'm the one. I'm the one to bring you healing. The 38-year invalid was shown tremendous grace because while he was helpless, Christ healed him of his infirmities. So the first issue I see is the issue of man's inability. The second issue I see is the issue of the Sabbath. 
Now, this is a little bit technical. I won't take long doing it. You can talk about Sabbath a long time, but this is significant because in this text you have this stirring of the pot because the Jews have come in and said, oh, but you've healed this guy, or they didn't acknowledge the fact that he healed this guy other than saying, this guy's picked up his mat. All right, now, now, now picture the scene because this is indicative of the heart of man. All right, the heart of the men who were trusting in Judaism and not in the saving work of Christ. Okay, so Jesus heals this man, 38-year invalid who could not get himself any help. And Jesus does this work. And they don't address that issue. What they address is the fact that this man has picked up a mat that might weigh 10 ounces. I don't know what kind of mat it was, but it wasn't heavy. It wasn't much. I mean, how much could an invalid carry, right? I mean, he had a mat there. How, 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 much, how much could it have weighed? So Jesus heals him, he picks up this mat, and he walks, and they get all upset to the point that they want to kill Jesus because this guy picked up his mat. And they're all saying, but the Sabbath says, the Sabbath says. So let me answer a few questions. What was the Sabbath and why is it commanded? I'm going to read this for time's sake, so just listen. The Sabbath was representative of God ceasing from his work after making creation. Now God did not stop working he stopped creating at that moment god works to sustain the world he works to sustain you this is what the scriptures teach us this is what logic teaches us that if god removes his hand it all falls apart so that's what the sabbath represented but it was a time that god observed the product of his creation that's the idea of rest is he glorified himself he glorified himself. And the Sabbath is set aside for us. For what? For glorifying God. However, God did not, uh, the Sabbath was given to be observed as a day devoted to the worship of and to offer thanksgiving to God. The Sabbath was ob- observed in remembrance of the Lord's work in delivering Israel from Egypt, from Egyptian bondage. That's in the book of Deuteronomy. Breaking the Sabbath was a serious deal, punishable by death, Exodus 31 and Numbers 15. So it's a, it was a big deal. The Sabbath was legit. It was right. It was good. They should honor the Sabbath. They should do exactly what God said to do with the Sabbath. But the question then becomes, are believers held to an old covenant Sabbath understanding or Sabbath law? And I would say no. I would say no. Now, I want to say this first. I don't think so, and I'll give a brief argument as to why, but there are plenty of Christians who would say otherwise, who absolutely adhere to a Sabbath. And let me explain what I mean by all of that. I don't mean we don't have to gather together to worship. I don't mean that. And why do I mean that? Or why don't I mean that? Because Jesus made it very clear that the church, New Testament, should conduct themselves in certain ways. And one of those ways is that they gather together as the assembly for worship. So Jesus retaught a portion of the Sabbath or a certain construct within the Sabbath, but some of those restrictions were lifted. Just like, just like touching unclean animals was, restrict, was, was lifted. Just like bringing unauthorized, uh, bringing unauthorized, I can't even read my, 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 I don't know what I've typed here. Bringing unauthorized something before God. Uh, I just completely didn't put a word in there. So, you know, uh, keeping your hair unkept, that's a big no-no. Eating fat, big no-no. Tearing your clothes. Touching a dead body, eating fruit from a tree that's been planted within four years, trimming your beard, etc. There's a lot of rules that they had to adhere to, and there's great discussion as to why God did those things. Some of them may seem crazy to you, but God had an agenda, and those things can be explained, and you walk away saying, okay, 
I get it. It's all attached to holiness. It's all attached to obedience. I get all these things, what God is setting up, what God is doing. Because the problem is we get confused when we approach the Bible in isolation and we say, you know what, I'm just going to read just a few chapters of Leviticus and not consider the rest of the Bible. Well, if you do that, you're going to be lost. If you do that, you're not going to have a clue. You're going to walk away saying, God's crazy. God's crazy. He's an egomaniac. You know, this stuff is ridiculous. You can't do that unless you've considered the whole counsel of God's word. Bring fairness to your debate. Bring fairness to your logic. Bring fairness to your argument. And consider the whole counsel of God's word. There's 31,240 verses. Go chew on them, and then we can have a discussion, right? That's, that's the idea, is we take the whole counsel of God's word. That's how these things start to make sense. But that's the old covenant. Now we're under a new covenant. And I believe that under that new covenant, believers aren't held to the old covenant understanding of the Sabbath. A good rule of thumb is this. If Jesus retaught anything under the old covenant law, then we adhere to it. And he does, in a way, reteach the Sabbath. Now you go through the Ten Commandments, which there was more laws than that, right? And Jesus addresses all of them. When it gets to Sabbath, it's a little bit different. We understand in the New Testament, well, the Jesus and the New Testament writers, right, all under the inspiration, all, all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we get to all these other writings by all these other authors that are speaking, uh, and it's not just Jesus, but Paul and, and, and all of these others who are talking. And the Scripture teaches us about Sabbath and how to rightly conduct ourselves. That's how we have our understanding of tithing. It's not that 10%. It's not that understanding from the old covenant. There's a new covenant. You can't discount that there's a new covenant. The fact that it says new implies a newness, a reconstruction, something different. The Jewish leaders were masterful at perverting the Sabbath rules. So Jeremiah 17, 21, this is what they would go to and why they got upset about this man who picks up his mat. They're probably thinking of Jeremiah 17, 21, or something from Leviticus or something from Exodus that says this, thus says the Lord. This is the Lord speaking, so this matters, especially under Old Covenant. Take care for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. And do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I command your fathers. First of all, Jesus brought a new covenant. Second of all, a man carrying a 10-ounce mat is not what Jeremiah had in mind. It's not what God had in mind here. This man's not laboring. He labored more to move his body to get to the pool. He labored more through that than he did to pick up a mat and walk. But that, in their piety, that's what they focused on. That was what they hammered. The text reveals the truly destitute heart of man before God regenerates him by giving him a heart of flesh. This is what we see in those Jewish leaders. This is what we see in them coming to him saying, how dare you pick up your mat? How dare you pick up your mat? They totally missed the fact that Jesus just healed an invalid of 38 years. What in the world? Why did that not catch your eye? And again, we go back to a natural mind on natural thing. We go back to 1 Corinthians 2.14 where they cannot, they cannot accept these things. They can't receive these things. These things will not compute. These things will not be processed because it is a natural mind. And a natural mind cannot receive, process the supernatural. This is what 1 Corinthians 2 is explaining. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that the Jewish leaders responded the way that they did. The Jews completely missed the miraculous. 
They couldn't get past their own piety. And I don't know, maybe you've done the same thing before. Maybe you've been sharing your faith with someone. And again, you think you've really given the gospel very, very clearly. And you walk away defeated because they just didn't see it. No thanks. No thanks. I've talked to people before. Yeah, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm broken. Yeah, I know. I, I've got problems. I got this. And I'm like, well, well, here's the gift. Here's the beauty. Here's the package. Here's Jesus. This is what happens. Here's the transaction. He did the work. He's the active agent. You're the passive agent. Guess what, man? You can have all this great stuff. And Jesus provides it because he did the work, right? Man, and it brings you out of darkness and into light. Ah, no thanks. And you just want to punch somebody in the throat because you're like, why aren't you getting this? And then 1 Corinthians 2.14 answers it and says, because they can't. It's impossible for them. A natural mind cannot perceive or receive or understand or believe the things of God unless and until God regenerates and until God by grace gives faith. This is the biblical and logical process of these things. So not only is there the issue of man's inability and the issue of the Sabbath, third, there's an issue of partiality. An issue of partiality. Now if you know your Bible well, I would say, because this is kind of nestled in there, Romans 2 verse 11, it says God shows no partiality. So I bring this to the table as a question, because did Jesus not show partiality to this man? Did Jesus not come in here and walk past 10, 20, 30, 100 invalids, 1,000 invalids, gathered together at these porticos, gathered together at these colonnades, waiting to get in the waters? Did he not walk right past them and to this guy and say, hey, do you want to be healed? Why didn't he say to the other guy, you want to be healed? You want to be healed? You want to be healed? Now, you can say, well, Alan, you don't know that he didn't. You don't know that he didn't. I would say that he didn't because of what this text is actually teaching us. So Jesus singles out this man when he could have healed everyone around. He could have. Well, let's be honest. Jesus could have made it definitive that everyone goes to heaven, but he didn't. God in his sovereign power could have said, I'm going to create a world where sin wouldn't enter the world. But he didn't. And you have to ask yourself those questions. I mean, are these not the questions we sit around in our theological circles and we want to ask, but maybe we don't want to know the answer. Or maybe we, you know, are scared to ask, you know. And we say, you know, I want to know these things. Maybe that's on your checklist one day when you stand before God. You say, you know, I've got to know this. You know, you said in the word that, you know, God does not desire that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And yet, here we are, gone the narrow way, and there's a whole lot of people that have gone the way of destruction. So what's up with that? You know, how do I understand that? And I'd invite you to ask Austin, and he might answer all those fun questions. (laughs) But Jesus singles this man out when he could have healed everyone, but he didn't. So what's happening here? Did Jesus show partiality when Scripture says that God shows no partiality. We need to understand the context of Romans 2 when it says that God shows no partiality. Partiality being an unfair or an unjust bias for a person or for a thing. Jesus has no injustice in him. So all of his decisions are a product of his perfection. So nothing he decides to do is wrong. Nothing. Everything is right. Everything is perfect. The problem is we impose a human standard or a human paradigm on him. And we shake our fist at God and say, well, that's not love. That's not just. That's not fair. As if we're the epitome of fairness or love or justice. As if we're the ones that are the standard for that. And this is the way you approach the Bible. Instead of trying to say, in my humanity, I'm going to try to reason, and I'm going to try to force this 
square into a round hole. I'm going to try to do this. And rather we say, you know what? I need to flip this on his head and say, God's the one who sets the standard for these things. I'm saying it's love, but God's doing something different, but he is love, so that must be love. I must misunderstand love. I must misunderstand grace. I must misunderstand fairness and truth and justice and injustice. Paul writes in Romans 2 in this context where he says that uh, partiality, God shows no partiality, is that he says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. He's saying, look, things are happening, and I've set this system in place. These people have brought this on themselves. I'm not being unjust. I'm not being unfair. This is the way it is. This is the standard that I've created, and everybody falls under that standard. So when he says, for all who sin without the law will perish without the law, that's the standard. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. That's the standard. There you go. So partiality is an unjust bias for a person or a thing. Many would say that for Jesus to walk in there and to heal one man and not the others, man, that's just unjust. That's just not, that's just not just. That's not fair. That's not right. Two things on justice and fairness. First of all, fairness. God operates from a different standard of fairness. God is fair. And God is good to not treat everybody the same way. And you are the same way. You treat your children different than you would treat my children. Husbands, you treat your spouse differently than you would treat my spouse. And it better be that way. Right? You know, if fairness is treating everybody equally the same, we don't do that. We don't do that. Sometimes we do. It's like, okay, well, what I do for one, I'll do for the other. We call that fairness. Well, then it brings the question, who's the standard of fairness? Well, it's God. But God doesn't do for one what he does for the other. He doesn't. Jacob and Esau, did God do for one what he did for the other? No. This man at Bethesda, did he do for one what he did for the other? No. Over and over and over and over again, God shows that, hey, I am the standard of fairness. What he does is right and good. And he doesn't have to do the same thing for everybody. He heals the nobleman's son. But how about the fact that an entire civilization was wiped out by a flood? He did not treat them the same way that he treated the nobleman's son, did he? How about all those who died? He healed Lazarus, but what about the others that he didn't heal? What about your family that he hasn't healed? What about the, the ones you mourn because you've lost even recently that he didn't heal or he hasn't resurrected from the grave? He didn't treat you the same way that he treated someone else. He doesn't do it for those who are unbelieving, and he doesn't do it for those who are believing. With the exception of all who call on him will be saved. You know, all who profess Christ, all who put on the Lord Jesus will be saved. So there is an issue of partiality, but not in the negative sense, in the sense that God can do and God can be good. Jesus healed the man not because of the man's goodness. He didn't come in there and see this goodness in this man. He didn't say, you know what, you know, you've stirred my affections, you've stirred my emotions. I feel sorry for you. I'm going to heal you. It wasn't because of good or bad that this man has done. Jesus did this out of his own good pleasure to promote his deity and to glorify God the Father. Let me give you some examples of how all this works as it's substantiated from other texts. John chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man. And the disciples are asking him this question. This is discipleship, right? Jesus does this miracle, or he's about to do a miracle, and the disciples are saying, look, this guy's blind, and this is their theology. This guy's blind because of something he did, so he's being punished for something that he did. And he says, no, 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 no. That's not the case. 
In this man's case, he says, it wasn't because of what his mother did. It wasn't because of what his father did. This is John 9, 3, if you're wanting to reference this. It's just so that God might display his works. That's it. It's not arbitrary. It's so that God might display his works. Now, sometimes it works differently. Sometimes, like David's baby, David sins with Bathsheba, and then the scripture spells it out very specifically. And this is a tough pill to swallow, and it takes some theological acumen and some theological processing to, to, to wrestle through this. But David's baby dies. God comes back later, and the scripture says that God killed David's baby as a direct result of David's sin. So in this case, even though, G, even though, even though David was atoned for, even though he was a follower of God and was going to be accepted into God's kingdom in the aftermath, but he still disciplined his son. He still disciplined his child, David. And that discipline came by way of taking out the life of his child. That's a hard pill to swallow. So sometimes God works that way. But it doesn't always mean it's because this person sinned or that person sinned. And it wasn't the case, um, I don't think, or maybe I really don't know, for the case with the healed man. Romans 9, 10 through 13, a more direct text. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, and what Paul's doing is he's making this point. He's making the point that God does his work not based on what you bring to the table, not based on your value. He does these things for his own good pleasure. He doesn't do it. You haven't, you haven't manipulated God. You haven't coerced God to move a certain way. You know, your coercion and your manipulation doesn't work with him. You know, he's not saying that. He's saying God does these things according to his own good pleasure. So he references Rebekah and Isaac, and he says, Though they were not yet born, speaking of the boys, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I've hated. That's a strong text. And this is the argument that Paul's making. He says, God is not doing things based on your activity. Okay? God did these things for his own good purposes. It doesn't even throw in foreknowledge. It doesn't even say, well, God saw this, what happened, so he made this choice. This is not the way that God operates. It's not what the Bible teaches. But according to God's own pleasure, Paul uses a very offensive language like election and predestination and all these great things. So this is what's happening. So then we go back to the question, why would Jesus, with the ability to heal all, save some and not all? I think this ultimately points to the reality of our salvation. It points to the reality of our salvation. And here it is, very simply put, all of us are those invalids. All of us are metaphorically gathered around those pools. All of us are in desperate need of healing, but we are represented by the invalid who can't heal himself, who can't self-deliver. That's all of us. Separate from Christ, that's all of us. We're born in sin, the Bible says, inherited a guilt, inherited a sin nature from Adam. And so we come into this world that way in desperate need of someone to be the active agent to say, I'm going to resuscitate your life. You don't need a lifeline because dead people don't reach out for them. You need resuscitation, right? And so this is what he says. You need resuscitation. And this is all of us. This is all of us. This is everybody. And it is very gracious for God to rescue anyone at all because what have we all deserved we all deserve to die in our spiritual invalid state and for God to rescue anyone and if someone shakes their fist and says well that's just not just here's justice justice is you get what you deserve 
Justice is you were brought into this world, you transgressed, and God cast you into hell. That's what we deserve. But that's not what God did. God, according to his mercy, God, according to his love, God, according to Ephesians 1, according to the Bible, he calls us, he rescues us, using Bible terms, predestination, election, all those fun things. God worked so that we might be in him. He did these beautiful, beautiful things because otherwise we would not want him. And he made it so that we would because he's gracious. So there's an issue of partiality. A little bit more, there's an issue of complete healing here. So we move along in the story, right? There's more to see. Almost done. Move along in the story. Jesus heals this man. And it's interesting, it says all at once he was healed. Now this has two connotations. This all at once has two connotations. He's healed and, it's mention, and, and what's mentioned here is the speed or the rate or the promptness or the rapidity at which he was healed. All those things mean the same thing. He was healed instantly, okay? Just like this. He's healed instantly, just like Naaman who goes into the, the, the dirty river, you know, the dirty river back in, the, back in the book of Kings, and he dips seven times, and nothing changes until he comes up the seventh time. Then he's completely healed. And that's a great story with great implications. But here we are, John chapter 5, Jesus heals this man, and it says, at once he was healed. This man was instantly and completely cured of, not, of, of, of his ailment physically. So there's another component to this, and that's the totality at which he was healed. And if you're seeing the Bible as the mirror, you're starting to catch on. You're saying, okay, if I'm represented by this invalid, if, if this is an accurate assessment of who I am apart from Jesus, then what follows most definitely applies to me. And that's that I have these infirmities. My infirmities, as the scripture says, that I was dead in my trespasses of sins. I had no hope. I had no desire for life or Christ. I could not believe. I was estranged from God. I was an enemy of God, hostile towards God. I could not believe. I could not understand these things. I was darkness. The list goes on and on and on. These are the affirmities that we suffer when we're apart from Christ, when we're lost. When we're these are the infirmities. And when we see this man who was at once healed we apply that to us and say okay how does that make sense for me that means that I was brought out of this death and into life that I have a great unshakable hope in Christ now whereas before I had no hope I'm no longer estranged from God but I made a citizen of God's house I was an enemy now I'm not an enemy that's fact the Bible calls God a friend to me he's a father yes but he's a friend to me now there's a there's a Paradigm, paradigm shift in my relationship with him. There's a dynamic shift in my relationship to God because of what Jesus has done. I'm no longer a stranger to God, but I'm grafted in. I could not believe once before, but now because of faith given to me, I believe and I'm rescued. I now understand the things of God, whereas before I could not. When this happens or when this happened to us, we wanted for nothing in terms of what we have in Christ. Now, we're not complete yet. We're not finished. But the condemnation of our sin completely stripped away. We don't have want for that. Righteousness of God completely given to us. We don't have want for righteousness. We don't have want for right standing with God. We don't have want for justification. All that stuff fully, completely done for us. We're just waiting to be completed in the sense that we want our sin nature removed. And so we don't have to deal with that anymore. So there's an issue of a complete healing. The final issue is an issue 
of sinning no more. So the man, after he's healed, doesn't know who healed him, doesn't know the name of Jesus. He walks away. He's at the temple. He's talking about it. The Pharisees or the Jewish leaders come to him. Who did this for you? He's like, I don't know. I don't know who it is. I don't know who that man was. So then Jesus comes to him and says, hey, you know, you are well. Sin no more so that nothing else happens to you or so that nothing bad happens to you. And then the guy, after the exchange with Jesus, he goes and he tells the Pharisees or the Jewish leaders, well, this is, this is who did it. Now, I can't make an argument for this guy having been saved spiritually. You know, it seems to me that he's just reporting the news. It seems to me that maybe he just goes back and because the Jewish leaders were interested, he just goes back in there and says, hey, you know, you were asking this question earlier. Now I know his name is Jesus. They get all hot and bothered and they decide, well, we need to kill him. We need to kill him. I just, I can't make a biblical argument for this man's regeneration. It may have happened. It may have happened, but I'm not going to impose something that I don't see clearly imposed in the scriptures. And so, presuming this man to not yet be a believer, Jesus responds to him and he says, you are well physically. He says, go and sin no more. Here's what I don't think. I don't believe that Jesus is saying this because if this man sins again, he's going to return to his invalid state. I don't think that's what's going on. I think that's a, 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 a pretty nasty stretch. Okay, don't do anything else bad or I'm going to get you. I'm going to put you back on that mat. I don't, I don't think that's how that works, right? So what, what I think is Jesus is basically calling him to repentance, saying, look, you've got, you've got your physical healing, but there is a fate that is far worse than a 38-year-old battle with injury and illness, and it's called eternal death. It's called the judgment and the wrath of God, and these things are much worse than anything you've suffered. So I think he's basically saying, you need to repent. You need to be right with God right? So I think that's how this would apply to an unbeliever. And I'll just read it so that I can make better sense of it for you. The unmerited favor of God surrounds or falls on the just and the unjust. That's what the scripture says. God causes the rain. He uses this agricultural metaphor because they would clearly understand it. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. What is Jesus teaching in this text or what is the Holy Spirit wanting to convey through the author? saying that God is so merciful and gracious that even those who are hostile towards him, they receive grace. They wake up with a smile. They laugh at jokes. They go to family reunions. They have fun. They go to carowinds. They ride slides and roller coasters and they laugh together with family. All while they're hostile towards God and all while they're enemies of God and all, where, all while he is dressed in battle arraignment against them. And yet they walk around with smiles on their face ignorant towards the devastation that has come. And that's grace. That's grace. And it falls on the just and the unjust. One commentator said this, and I thought it was so great. He says, grace does not ignore the requirements of holiness. Grace does not ignore the requirements of holiness. So he's saying, you've been graciously healed of your physical infirmity, but there's still a requirement for your soul. You, you have this, and you're walking around straight up. Your back's good. You can breathe. Whatever else is going on with you, you're good to go, man. I've basically made you new physically. But that won't do it in the end of all things. Just because I've shown you this grace, this grace that is common to man, just because I've given you this doesn't mean that you're off the hook because there is a demand for your soul. 
There's a demand for purity. There's a demand for righteousness. There is a demand for holiness. And you will not find it in your works, but only in the works of Jesus. That's how this applies to the unbeliever. But how does it apply to the believer? Our right standing before God does not negate our responsibility to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And God, although he has removed the condemnation of your sin and my sin, God can and will, if he so chooses, because he's right and fair to do so, God will bring chastisement and discipline on his children, and you just don't want to endure that. Just like David's baby. Just like David. We might be atoned for. We might be in good standing with God. You love your children, and I love mine, but that does not keep me from disciplining them. I will not stop loving my child, and I will not stop spanking my child. Why? Because I love them. And so God does the same thing. I love you. I've rescued you. I've made you mine. I've brought you into the domain of my, 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 the kingdom of my beloved son, out of the domain of darkness. And here you are with all of this that I've given you, this inheritance that is waiting for you, and I love you. But when you misrepresent me, God might discipline his children in love, all so that it will chisel away the things that don't look like Jesus. Because the most loving thing for God can do, in addition to making himself knowable, is to lovingly fashion us more and more into the image of his son. So this text comes as a warning. Unbelievers need Jesus because common grace is not the grace needed for right standing with God. Salvific, saving, redeeming grace is the grace that is needed to be right with Jesus. Unbelievers need Jesus because common grace is not the grace needed for right standing with God. Believers, although justified, can still be subject to the discipline of God for conduct unbefitting a Christian. Of all the issues raised in this text, the most significant issue is the issue of Christ's deity. Now the next few verses, and then it jumps over to a new section, a new pericope is what you would call that. It jumps and Jesus is going to articulate his deity for himself. So we're going to turn a major corner next week because there have been signs that articulate Jesus' deity and there have been others who have spoken towards Jesus' deity. But now, when we move to the next portion, Jesus is going to speak for himself. So I hope that you'll be back with us next week because everything hinges on the deity of Christ. All things. Christianity hinges on the deity of Christ. The atonement of Christ and its potency hinges on his sinlessness His sinlessness hinges on his deity. So all things are at stake, and they hinge on the deity of Christ. Let's pray, and we can be dismissed. Father, for your goodness, we thank you for your patience. We thank you. Lord, thank you for captivating our minds through your word. Lord, I pray that all the things that were said today will be rightly processed in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, that our minds might be renewed according to the scriptures. Lord, that we might look more like Christ when we go home. We might look more like Jesus to our kids, to our spouses, to our friends, co-workers. And Lord, that we might find exceeding joy in pursuing holiness, that we might find so much value and worth and sufficiency and satisfaction in representing you to the best of our abilities. And Lord, we know that you must do works in our life. You must sustain us. You must continue to keep us, continue to work in us continue to direct us and so holy spirit we ask you to do those things that you were that you were given to us to do help us to see clearly help us to understand 
Give us a growing love and passion for your word, for discipleship, for evangelism. Lord, help us to see these things that we need to see that would make us more like Jesus. And we do these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.